0: John 14. We are back in the Gospel of John. We took a little bit of a detour during the Easter time, but we're going to get back in our study of the Gospel of John. And as we begin this morning, I want you to imagine two scenarios. Two scenarios. Here's scenario number one. You're going through your Facebook feed, if you have Facebook. I know some of you don't, so just imagine that you do. But you're going through your Facebook feed, and all of a sudden you see a post from one of your friends about this practice of grave-sucking. And you think to yourself, what is grave-sucking? And you go to this website, and it launches you into this wacky world of the extreme fringes of evangelical practices. And so you find out what grave sucking is. These people go to the graves of dead Christians, and they lay on those graves to somehow suck the anointing or the Holy Spirit out of that dead person. And a famous pastor and his wife went to the grave of C.S. Lewis, laid on his grave, and supposedly sucked the anointing out of C.S. Lewis's dead body. And then you're like, okay, this is weird. It takes you to another website where you go to some YouTube clips of this pastor who's famous for his YouTube clips of smoking the Holy Ghost, toking the Holy Ghost. He talks about smoking the Holy Ghost as if he is a drug. He talks about shooting the Holy Ghost up into your vein and giving you power. And you're thinking, this is really weird. Then you go to another website and there's this lady that's talking about gold dust, angel orbs, teleportation, out-of-body experiences, all in the name of the Holy Spirit. And then you come across this other YouTube clip where this, this lady talks about how the Holy Spirit's blue and he floats around like the genie on Aladdin. This is actually what she says. And she says the Holy Spirit's sneaky and funny and he's blue. And you think to yourself, what have I gotten into? And then scenario number two, a knock comes on the door. And you open the door and there are two gentlemen there in nice clean white shirts and black slacks with a little name badge that says elder so-and-so. And they begin to talk to you about their religion, their God, their church. And then they start to talk about the Holy Spirit and they refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. A force, a misty fog that floats around the ether. And so you close the door and you think to yourself, this has been a bizarre day. I've been exposed to the extreme of these issues related to the Holy Spirit. And I've also had a a major cult show up to my door and talk to me about the Holy Spirit. And then you sit down and you think to yourself, you know what? I don't really know what I believe about the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we talk much about these days. What is this teaching related to the Holy Spirit? So today I want us to see from the scriptures what Jesus himself has to say about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Because as we navigate through john's chapter 14 15 and 16 we have some of the clearest teaching from jesus on who the holy spirit actually is so let's get back to the context here of john chapter 14 judas has left to go betray jesus he turns to his disciples and says let your heart not be troubled I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to heaven, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. And the reason that you can have confidence is because I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And by the way, guys, I'm going to the Father. I'm leaving you, and you're going to do greater works than I've done because I'm going to the Father. And that's where we pick up in this whole conversation of Jesus telling them on the night of his betrayal, just hours before he goes to the cross, that he's leaving that he's going to go back to heaven. And so as Jesus begins to unpack and teach what this means for him to leave, he's going to introduce us to the role of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to come back to this question a lot over the next three chapters because Jesus addresses it over and over again. So here's today's question. Who exactly is... The Holy Spirit. Who exactly is the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of confusion out there. You see extreme behavior on Christian television in the name of the Holy Spirit, and you look at that and think, there's nothing biblical that I see going on there. You've got cults coming to your door, maybe, and having weird views of the Holy Spirit. And for us, as reformed Baptistic type people, we often don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. We talk about the Father, talk about the Son, and sometimes the Holy Spirit gets inadvertently left off. We don't talk about Him as much. And here's oftentimes what happens. In Baptistic circles, we're more afraid of what the Holy Spirit doesn't do that we fail to talk about what He really does, because we don't want to go to those extremes that we see out there. And so we need to get a clear picture from the words of Jesus who exactly is the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? And how is he promised to us? He is, by the way, the third person of the Trinity. It's not the Father, the Son. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So let's listen to Jesus' words this morning. In John chapter 14, we're going to pick up in verse 12. John chapter 14, verse 12. These are the words of our Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's as far as we're going to go this morning. But what I want us to do is to look at three truths that Jesus teaches us about the person and work of the Holy Spirit right from this passage of Scripture. Here's truth number one, and it may seem elementary, but in this day and age, we've got to address it. Truth number one, he is a divine person co-equal with the Father and the Son. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a person. He possesses all of the attributes of personhood. He's a divine person. Now, it's easier in our mind to think of God the Father as a person because we can understand father language. It's even more easy for us to understand Jesus as a person because he came in the flesh. He died on the cross. But when you begin to think about the Holy Spirit, it's harder for us to think of him as a person. And the King James Bible has not helped us in its translation because what does the King James call him? The Holy Ghost. Now, what comes to mind when you think about ghost? Maybe I heard somebody say Casper, the friendly ghost. Or some phantom or fog or some type of mysterious mist. The Holy Ghost. One thing I want you to notice are the masculine pronouns used for the Holy Spirit. Just read carefully. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He will dwell with you and be in you. Notice Him, He. A masculine pronoun, a person. It doesn't say it will be with you. It will live in you. The world does not know it. So, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He is a divine person, co equal with the Father, co equal with the Son. The Holy Spirit was not created, He's not somehow less than the Father and Son. He's not somehow subservient to the Father and Son. He's the eternal Spirit of God who has always existed. He is a divine person and possesses all the attributes of God. So we can call him God, the Holy Spirit. So we need to be very careful in how we speak about the Holy Spirit. We don't speak of the Holy Spirit as an it. We speak of the Holy Spirit as a he, a masculine pronoun. He, him. Now, notice what Jesus says. I will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another helper. Another. Now, in the original language, there's two words for another. You can have another that's different, or you can have another of the same kind. That's the word that Jesus uses here, another of the same kind. In other words, The Holy Spirit is going to be just like Jesus. Jesus is a helper. Jesus was there on planet Earth at that time. The Father is going to send another helper. Now, your translation may have a different word besides helper. It may say counselor, comforter, advocate. Here's the reason why there's so many different translations of this word there is really no good way to translate this Greek word into English. It's very difficult. It's the Greek word parakletos, and it's very difficult to translate. And so context determines the meaning of how you use this word, helper. The ESV uses the word helper. Now, there's different translations. Counselor. Now, when you think of counselor... There's nothing wrong with that translation, but what immediately comes to your mind when you think of counselor? I'm going to go see a marriage counselor. I've got to go report to my camp counselor. We tend to think in more therapeutic terms, like a counselor is going to sit there and help me with my psychological needs. So we kind of think of the Holy Spirit as this, this marriage counselor or this, this type of therapist that's going to help me with my, my felt needs and help me through my problems. So there can be some misunderstanding with that word. Comforter. He's my comforter. That only sounds like the Holy Spirit helps me when I'm sad. He comforts me. He consoles me. Do you know why we have the word comforter? And by the way, comforter is not one of those things you put down on your sheets and and your blankets, a comforter. A comforter is from Latin. That's why the King James uses the word comforter. 500 years ago, comforter meant something different. Confortus, with strength. The word comforter, back when the King James was written, meant one who gives strength. But that's not the way we understand the word comforter today. When we hear the word comforter, we think, oh, you're sad. I need to comfort you. I need to console you. We don't think of somebody coming along with strength. So sometimes the word comforter is a little bit confusing. Okay, what about the word helper? Helper's good. But sometimes if you think of helper, there's a a danger in the word helper in the sense that the Holy Spirit's my personal assistant. He's my helper in the sense that I'm sovereign and the Holy Spirit helps me when I need him, more as he's kind of my, my assistant. He's lower than me. He's not the sovereign spirit. He's just my, my helper. So it can be misleading. Really, the word is advocate. It meant one who gave legal advice, one who would stand in the courtroom with you and, and be your defense, one that would come to your, to your legal aid. But the Holy Spirit's a lot more than just that. <clears throat> the word also was used of troops coming from behind to go to the front lines of battle to bring reinforcements. So you have to ask the question, what does this word mean? Well, depending on whichever context you have or, or translation, I think all the translations are good. But I want you to notice something. Jesus does not say the Father will give you help. What does he say? The Father will give you a helper. What's more important, help from time to time when you need it or a helper, a person? You see, the Holy Spirit's a promised person. Now, this word parakletos, this word advocate, comforter, counselor, helper, whatever you want to translate it, It's only used for the Holy Spirit, except for one other place. And it's in John's writing. It's in 1 John 2.1. It's spoken of Jesus. In 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. Okay, so let's talk about Jesus as our advocate. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, Died on the cross, rose again, ascended back to heaven. Where's Jesus today? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's our advocate. He's our go-between. He's our mediator. He's the one that, that, that stands in our defense so that if any of these accusations come against us, we're not guilty. We're secure in God's presence. And that's what Jesus did while on earth, did he not? He helped the disciples, he led the disciples, he taught the disciples, he protected the disciples, he gave aid to the disciples, he comforted the disciples, he counseled the disciples. But what's going to happen here in just a few hours in the context of John? He's going to go away. He's going to go away. He's going to go back up to heaven. So here comes the question. If Jesus is no longer physically present on planet earth, how's he going to do all those things? And how is it going to spread to just 12 guys to to believers all around the world? The way that Jesus is going to mediate his presence, the way that Jesus is going to carry on his work as the comforter, as the advocate, as the counselor, as the helper, is he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be another counselor, another helper in the same way that Jesus was. And so we have to ask the question, until Jesus comes back, The Holy Spirit's been given to us to be everything that Christ was to the disciples while they were on earth. He will supply all of our strength. He will supply all of our counsel. He will guide. He will lead. He will teach. He will comfort. He will counsel. He will help. Because Jesus is physically in heaven, he's not on earth anymore. The Holy Spirit's the one that that the Father's sending to carry on the work of the ascended Christ to be our helper. Not just help. But helper, a person. So number one, the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He's the helper. Now context determines how he helps. What does he help us with? There's a lot of things the Holy Spirit helps us with. And we'll talk about that as we go through this study. But in the context right here, Jesus is very specific about what the Holy Spirit helps us to do. Helps us to understand how is he our helper. It's in verse 17. So here's number two. Truth number two. The Holy Spirit, he is the divine communicator of truth. He's the divine communicator of truth. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, not just help, but helper, a person to be with you forever. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth. Now, there's a second title here that Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Truth. This is going to be repeated multiple times. So go over to John 15, 26 for just a moment. Remember, the next three chapters is all about the teaching on the Holy Spirit. So here we have it. He's the Spirit of Truth, verse 17. Go to chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus is going to repeat this. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, there's those two words again. He's the Helper, he's the Spirit of truth. Okay, go to chapter 16, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. Now it's very interesting, the grammar here, I'm not going to bore you with it, but the way it's constructed in the original language really conveys the idea that he's the communicator of truth. He's the deliverer of truth. He's the conveyor of truth. He's the one that makes truth known. He's not just the spirit who is true. That's not the way it's it's constructed in the original language. It's he's the one that gives the truth. He's the one that communicates the truth. He's the one that delivers or even defends the truth. So you've got to ask a question. If he's the spirit of truth, if he delivers truth, if he communicates truth, how does he do that? How does he do that? Is it just generic truths that he lets us know? How does the Holy Spirit communicate truth? Well, there's two ways he does that. Number one, he does it in the actual written word of God that he inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, all the written scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So this book you have in your hands does not just contain information about God. This is God's very breath. It's His very Word. And it's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit communicated truth to the writers of the scriptures to make sure that what they wrote down was the exact word of God without error. It's the God-breathed truth. Now, how do we know that? Because 2 Timothy 1, 20-21 tells us this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit so powerfully moved in the hearts and minds of the writers of scriptures that what they wrote was the actual God-breathed word. And so what we have is truth without any mixture of error in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit himself inspired to write. That's why Jesus says in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But notice what Jesus says here. Very interesting. I've struggled with this. What does he mean by this? Look at verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, why in the world does Jesus bring in this whole issue about the world not being able to receive or know the truth or know the Holy Spirit or or see the Holy Spirit? You see, here's the issue. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is not with the Holy Spirit. The problem is with fallen people who are in sin. You see, have you ever come across somebody and you've shared the gospel with them and it's just like a brick wall? They don't understand what you're talking about. It's like you're speaking a totally different language. You see, here's what happens. The fallen world, those who are without Christ, those who have not been, whose eyes have not been opened by the Holy Spirit, when you present truth to them, when they read the Scriptures, it means nothing to them. They can't understand it. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2.14? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You see, the world is living in rebellion against God and, and they rejected Jesus when he first came remember the world did not receive him and so the world is not going to receive the things of the spirit they're not going to understand the things of the spirit they're not going to see evidence of the spirit it's, it's just going to be a mystery to them until the spirit does the work of conviction which we'll get to in a few chapters. The Holy Spirit has to convict, the Holy Spirit has to convert, the Holy Spirit has to open those eyes, but, but lost people are blinded. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6, in their case, the God of this world, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So lost people are blinded to the, glo- the glory of God in the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Until the Holy Spirit turns that light bulb on in somebody's heart and mind to, to show them the glories of Christ, it's going to be foolishness to them because they're blind. So how does the Holy Spirit communicate truth? Well, first of all, he communicates truth to us by the written scriptures that he himself inspired. So we have the full, final, sufficient, infallible record of God's truth recorded for us in his very God-breathed words that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in making sure that we have. But let me ask you another question. This happens to me every week when I do sermon prep. How many times are you reading the Bible and all of a sudden you're like, what in the world does this mean? Anybody ever, like, I have no idea what I'm reading here. There's another way the Holy Spirit does a work in you. It's called the work of illumination. You see, because we are sometimes dense and we are sometimes foggy and we don't know a lot, the Holy Spirit comes and does this internal work in your heart and your mind to help you understand his written truth. You see, there's a difference between reading the bare word of God and reading this to where you understand it and it impacts you and it changes your life. There's a lot of professors at college campuses that teach religious classes and they preach out of the Bible. But they're not saved and they're not being changed by this word. So, the Holy Spirit takes the written word that he's written and he makes it come to bear in your heart and in your mind to where it starts to make sense. It starts to make changes and then it starts to apply and you become changed through the power of the word and it's the Holy Spirit doing that work. So that's how he communicates truth. You see, there's one thing just to have the bare facts of the Bible. Like you can, There's a lot of people that can do the Bible quizzes and, and Bible trivia, and they can spout off a lot of facts. There's another thing to spend some time in this Word and meditate over this Word and think deeply about this Word and let this Word impact you. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. He does this powerful work in your heart to help you understand. So the problem's not the Holy Spirit. He's fully capable. And the problem's not the Bible. It's fully reliable. What's the problem? Us. We've got biases. We've got opinions. We've got prejudices. We've got sin. We've got blinders. We've got blind spots. We're disobedient people. And when we read the Bible, we can oftentimes come with our own agenda, and we need the Holy Spirit to do that work of illumination. What does illumination mean? It just simply means turns the light bulb on. He gives that that light bulb exposure for us to understand what the word of God is. That's why Paul prays a prayer in Ephesians. It's an interesting prayer that Paul prays. He prays for believers, okay? He's not praying for non-believers. He's praying for believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, what's Paul's prayer for the believers at the church of Ephesus? In Ephesians 1, 16 through 18, Paul says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in all my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Here's his prayer. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? What's Paul praying? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened or the eyes of your heart opened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We sing that song, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. We need to have the eyes of our hearts opened when we read this truth so that we can understand it, so they can take root in our hearts, so that we can begin to actually apply it and live it out. And that's not coming from our own power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit taking the written word that's fully sufficient, and making it come to bear in our hearts and minds through that supernatural work that he does. So, the Holy Spirit, number one, he's a divine person. He's the helper, the advocate. Not just help, but the helper, a person. Not an it. Number two, he's the divine communicator of truth. He's the spirit of truth. He leads us in the truth. He guides us in the truth. He wrote the truth. But here's number three. The third truth about the Holy Spirit that's addressed in this passage of Scripture. Truth number three. He's the divine deposit who permanently lives in us guaranteeing our eternal life. Now, notice the words that Jesus uses here. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper. To what? To be with you for just a little bit, right? Is that what your Bible says? To be, I'm making sure you're awake. To be with you What's your Bible say? Forever. To be with you. Okay, to be with you. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Why? For he dwells with you and he will be in you. Those are some important words. He will constantly be with you forever. And he will dwell with you. You dwell. That's that's a word in the original language that means permanent residence. That he will live, he will abide, he will take up permanent residence in your heart as the very Spirit of God. It's what we call a timeless present tense. It never ends. His presence in your life. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's gonna come and go. You get a little bit of the Holy Spirit here, you get a little bit of the Holy Spirit there, you lose him, he comes back. No, he comes to live inside of you, to be with you forever. It's interesting when you look at the prepositions here. You don't don't get this in your English translations because you just look at this and say, he will be with you forever. He will dwell with you. He will be in you, with, in. English, what's the difference between with and in? Who cares? Jesus uses three different prepositions in the Greek text. Now, why he uses three, I have no idea, but they all mean something different. The first one, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with, it's the the preposition meta. It implies fellowship. He's going to be with you in fellowship. Meta. Second, with, Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor know him. You know him for he dwells with you, verse 17. That second with is a different preposition. It's para. It means his divine presence, talking more about him being a person. And then notice he will be in you, not just beside you, not just guiding you, not just helping you, but this is radical. He will be in you. That's a blessing the Old Testament saints didn't have. To have, stop and think about this. The very Holy Spirit of God, if you're a believer, lives in you, inside of you, in your heart. should give you great encouragement on many levels. Because if you're a Christian, you have the fullness of God himself living inside you as a divine person. Not just a force or a fog or some assistance, but a person taking up residence in your heart. And by the way, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, there's that same word, dwells. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Pretty simple. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Jesus. 1 John 3.24. By this we know that he abides in us, he lives in us. Why? By the spirit he's given us. How do we know Jesus lives in us? Because he's given us the spirit. 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. He lives in us. Now why do I say a deposit deposit? A down payment, guaranteeing our eternal life. That language comes from Ephesians chapter 1, 13 through 14. Paul expands upon this teaching of Jesus, living, or the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Listen to what Paul says about this Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're sealed with the Spirit. Now, in that ancient culture, a seal was like a stamp of wax that you'd put on a document. It was oftentimes used as a a branding. You'd brand cattle or you may even brand a slave. And so a seal, back in that ancient culture, accomplished three purposes. There were three things a seal did that are very, very important to our understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. Number one, a seal was used to authenticate if something was legitimate. So a king would take a piece of wax and it was still hot. He'd dip his signet ring into it showing that it was legitimately coming from the king. It would be sealed on a scroll and then when it was presented, you knew it was legitimate. Today we have the presidential seal. So it authenticates the truth. It's a beautiful thing because here's the the point of that. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has authenticated that you truly are a Christian. Your true identity is that of being one who's born again. You're, You're legitimately a child of God. You've legitimately been bought at a price, and you're the real deal in God's eyes because the Holy Spirit has sealed you. He's authenticated your relationship with Christ. But number two, a seal marked ownership. It marked ownership. When you branded cattle, as many of you do, you own that cattle. Unfortunately, they had slaves back then. When you you branded a slave, you owned that slave. A seal was a stamp of ownership. And so think about the Holy Spirit. When you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it's saying God owns you. God has bought you. You're God's property. You belong to God. You're God's possession. You're his. But the third thing the seal did, besides just authenticating and showing ownership, it was also a security device. If a a scroll had been tampered with, you knew it had been tampered with if the seal was broken. If the seal was broken, it had been tampered with. The, 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 The document had been tarnished. So think about the Holy Spirit being the seal. He himself is the seal. He doesn't do the sealing. He himself is the seal. In other words, he is the one that secures you forever because he lives inside of you. He will be with you. He's the one that is your guarantee. And notice what Paul says, he's the guarantee. Back then, when when they had a guarantee, it was like the first down payment on an installment that you promised to pay at the very end. So when you go buy a house, what do you do? I want, I've known one person in my life that bought a house at full price. Walked in on a handshake and paid cash for a house. Anybody done that? Some of you have. Bless you. You got the money to do that. Most people, what do we do? You go put a down payment on a house. And what's your down payment? Your down payment is a promise to the bank that you're going to make your monthly mortgage payments over 30 years and you're going to, you're going to fulfill it, Right. And then at the end, you get to burn the note because you technically own the house. It's the same idea here. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment that he's put inside your heart to promise you it's the first installment, it's the down payment, I'm making good, and your final payment's gonna be when you get to heaven and you step foot into your inheritance, you will have eternal life. And so think about it. If the Holy Spirit's the seal and the Holy Spirit's the guarantee and the Holy Spirit promises to live in you forever, is he going to renege on the deal? Is he somehow going to drop the ball? Is he somehow going to cease to exist himself? No, he's not going to fail. He is God's promise to you that you're a child of God and that you will get there at the very end to heaven that's why paul can say in 2nd corinthians 1 through 22 it is god who establishes us with you in christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee A guarantee of what guarantee that we're a child of god Guarantee that we'll never be lost or fall out of salvation. A guarantee that we will have eternal life. We will have our inheritance. So let's ask the question again, who's the Holy Spirit? He is a divine person, not an it. He's the helper, the advocate, the counselor, the comforter. An actual person. Fully God. He's also the divine communicator of truth. He has written this truth. So it's full and final and sufficient for everything that we need, but he also communicates this truth deep into our hearts and minds, and he's also the guarantee. He's also the guarantee, promising to permanently reside in us. Jesus says, He will be with you, He will dwell in you, and He will live in you. I don't know about you, but this is a great cause for joy, it's a great cause for security. It's a great cause to thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me just challenge you with something here you and I would never, ever be able to experience God's love without the Holy Spirit. You and I would never be able to experience salvation without the Holy Spirit. Guiding us into truth, opening our eyes to the truth, convicting us of the truth, and then coming to live inside of us. It's God's gracious gift to us that we can forever experience his love. So let's be thankful this morning that God has given us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. He's been poured into our hearts as our helper, not just help, but our helper, is the spirit of truth and the promise to live in our hearts forever as that guarantee until we step foot into heaven to receive our inheritance. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And would you just spend a few moments thanking God that he sent the Holy Spirit of truth to be your helper And maybe during this time you need help. Maybe there's something you're struggling with. Maybe there's something that that you're dealing with. Maybe there's something that you're that you're just grappling with and and, and you need help. Well, you're going to get more than help this morning. You've got a helper. So would you go to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength, give you help, give you guidance, give you direction? He is the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. Would you spend a few moments this morning drawing upon the Holy Spirit as the divine person that God has given to be your comforter, your counselor, and your strength? Living God, we thank you that you are a person, a divine person. You're not an it And Jesus has promised you to come be with us, to live in us, to guide us, to be our helper, to be the spirit of truth. And Holy Spirit, oftentimes we may neglect your presence in our lives. We may not be aware of how you're working in our lives, but we are thankful in this moment that you're inside of us, that we're experiencing God's love because of your presence, that you're helping us, you're encouraging us, you're teaching us. You, Holy Spirit, are our source of strength while Jesus is not on planet Earth and until he comes back. In in spirit, there may be many in this room that are struggling with issues of truth. They may be believing lies about themselves, lies that the devil has given them, lies about all different manner of things. And you are the spirit of truth. And so would you please penetrate hearts and minds this morning to lead them into the truth of your word? Spirit, there may be others in this room that are discouraged. They're weary. They're tired. Maybe they're even helpless. Would you be their comforter? Would you be their counselor? Would you be their helper? Lord, there may be others in this room that are doubting their salvation. They're wondering if they're really saved. Would you remind them, if they've truly trusted in Christ, that, Holy Spirit, you live inside them to be with them forever? And, Lord, there may be some in this room that have never trusted you for salvation, and uh, they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Would today be their day of salvation where they repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior? Thank you for granting us grace upon grace when we need it the most because of your great love for us, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.